Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Aaron Striegel, who is a professor of computer science and engineering at the University of Notre Dame. Professor Striegel's research interests focus on instrumenting the wireless network ecosystem to gain insight with respect to user behavior and optimizing network performance. Flagship projects of Professor Striegel include the NetSense NetHealth and the TESRE project involving the instrumentation and analysis of data from hundreds of smartphones and wearables over uh, a nearly seven-year period of continuous data streaming. Welcome, Aaron. Good to see you, Gil. So I want to start with uh, the, the TESRE project. Um, and this is a large-scale longitudinal in-situ multimodal sensing of information. And um, you investigate how a suite of sensors can measure workplace performance, such as organizational citizenship behavior, psychological traits, such as personality and affect, and physical characteristics, sleep, activity, and so on, over one year. Um, And so you enrolled 757 information workers across the US uh, and, and even measured heart rate, physical activity, sleep, social context, and other aspects. And you use smartwatches, phone agents, beacons, and social media. So this was really uh, collecting information over a long period of time. You're really uh, sort of looking at the process of doing that, right? Yeah. So the kind of the, the broader goal is this was a federally funded study. And yeah. the issue the particular set of agencies was having is primarily with regards to uh, just generally trying to better understand workplace performance. And the, there was sort of a, a widespread acknowledgement. You know, I think I think most people have probably done the yearly performance reviews or maybe even quarterly where you sit down, you kind of go through your you know, how have you performed this year for the purposes of promotions or raises? And, and there's sort of a largely an acknowledgement that this isn't the best process. Hmm. And so the, the kind of the crux of this funded effort was to see, you know, 
have things like wearables, smartphones, social media, and all, all of the, the work that's sort of been bubbling up in the literature, you know, could we take these kind of various sensing streams and could we fuse them together, bring together their multiple modalities then to try to better understand job performance and the various aspects that kind of fit into it? Could we do better than kind of what has been espoused in the literature? Right. Uh, could we gain new insight? And so the the crux of this study then is what we did, and this was this was a joint effort across a, a whole slew of university partners. Was is that we we tried to enroll a large number of information workers then and study them over a year long period, you know, and look at things how like uh, maybe life events or just sort of the general cadence during a year. Could we predict uh, daily job performance or just general trends and you know, what kind of insight could we gain with that? And it's, as you can imagine, it's sort of an incredibly complex suite of data, but, you know, the end goal was trying to figure out what, what sense could we gain? What kind of insight could we gain? And, and how could that be useful potentially to an organization? Yeah, so, so it seems like there, there are two things there, right? One is uh, in a study like this, one of the issues obviously is the privacy and security uh, of data and how receptive people are to, you know, sort of sign on to a study like this. Uh, and so you're sort of exploring that also, right? There are some incentives and things like that you explored here, or that's a different study? So, we, yeah, so we didn't necessarily explore the specific incentive levels. We had a couple of different approaches to that. But, you know, first and sort of fundamental as part of the study is we, we really put security and thinking about the privacy as sort of a fundamental sort of non-negotiable characteristic of the study. Yeah. Uh, because th there, there are legitimate concerns. You know, when I go to work, do I want to be instrumented as a requirement for my employment? And I think the sort of resounding answer for most people is no. <laughs> and so when we had launched this study, you know, any sort of human subjects work is going to have a review by what's called a, an institutional review board to approve mm. it. Uh, but we, we had been very careful to be very upfront. So part of our study, you have a standard sort of informed consent, which explains here's the benefits, here's the risks of participating in the study. From a, from a, a risk standpoint, there really aren't medical risks, but there are definitively always, you know, some privacy risks, which we tried to, to minimize or try to design in sort of security underneath in terms of how we would de-identify data and how we would aggregate it. But there's a very broad sense in terms of understanding what are you contributing. So we actually set up our study where not only would we get you to, to provide informed consent, we actually provided an overview for each of the sensors that we did. And we, we had our, our people enrolling in our study actually affirm that they're like, I'm okay with sharing this particular set of data. And then we make sure to also, as part of our study, uh, de-identify early. Uh, as early as we can in the pipeline, we, we have a very particular security structure in terms of how data flows into our, our back end, how we protect the data in terms of uh, restrictions to access, you know, sort of best uh, practices from security with regards to aspects such as two-factor authentication, uh, how the data is actually stored, how we sort of silo uh, any sort of... Uh, information that maps back a participant to that. So again, we sort of de-identified as early as we can um, such that it, the data isn't sitting with any sort of identifiable information in its final state. Uh, and so that's 
we're it, it, kind of one of my other hats is I do a little bit of security uh, work. And so we're, we're always very concerned on that. But at, at the end of the day, it still is a very valid concern because do I want people to have this information? And the, the hope with this study is as well to kind of provide insight of what actually helps, you know, what provides insight yeah. um, on it. You know, if I have data like location, is it actually useful or does it just seem like it might be useful, but maybe doesn't really contribute that well to understanding my job performance? You know, what what parts, what sensing streams might help best? And, and that's one of the things we've also looked at as part of the study and sort of try to kind of trying to understand what, what data might be useful towards the overall goal of better understanding job performance. Okay, okay. Um, so Aaron, you know, the, the infrastructure itself, could you talk a bit about it? So there is a, there is a wearable device, there's a phone uh, agent that's running in the background, there's some static uh, Bluetooth uh, beacons, and then there's social media data, right? Because this, this could have applications potentially, right, for uh, other um, use cases too, uh, such as health, uh, home health, you know, those types of things. So could you talk a little bit about the infrastructure that you use for it? Sure. So, so, so I would definitely agree that the, there's much broader implications than just potentially job performance. Um, so we had a, a large sort of set of university partners. So we brought in uh, experts. We had uh, Gloria Mark from University of California, Irvine, Andrew Campbell from Dartmouth, and then Day from the University of Washington, Moon Moon Dechaudhuri from Georgia Tech, Sydney DeMello from UC Boulder, and Natasha Chawla from Notre Dame. And so we, we had all these experts together who understood a lot of these sensing streams and how to analyze the data. So that helped us kind of understand, you know, what are the capabilities of these sensors when we were trying to set up the study? And so we had a couple of when we sort of designed this study to think about, number one was we wanted these sensors to really be unobtrusive and we wanted it, we didn't want people to feel like they were in a study. Yeah. So, you know, we were intentionally biased towards consumer wearables because we need you to wear these for the whole year. We want you to largely use these things and sort of forget about mm -hmm. it. And so that meant we, we needed long battery life. So you didn't have to constantly be charging <laughs> the device. Right. It needed to kind of run in the background and then a lot of it to sort of set it and forget it. So for the the wearable, which is kind of the centerpiece, if you will, because that provides sort of all of your your physical activity signals. So things like sleep, heart rate, uh, all of those sorts of things. We use the Garmin Vivo Smart 3. We had a great relationship with Garmin uh, that helped us get that all going. The nice part about that is it gave us five days of battery life. It was waterproof, so you didn't have to worry about it. Uh, you know, if you wore it in the shower, you could charge it pretty quick every morning and have it basically never run out of battery. Mm -hmm. So that that provided a lot of kind of our physiological signals. Yeah, um, we leveraged the there was a, a great phone agent that uh, Andrew's group out of Dartmouth had built called Student Life. Mm -hmm. So we kind of augmented that and that fed in data, some additional data from the wearable as well as data from our beacons. And that was kind of a, just kind of a longitudinal app running in the background. Now th there's always challenges with uh, Apple and Google and that, that, you know, from a, they, they have a fundamental tension with privacy. So they really don't like your app running longitudinally like that. <laughs> so we had kind of yeah. special mechanisms and sort of a non app store distribution, uh, you know, of course with full permissions and full signing to do this. Mm. 
but we kind of had this where that would longitudinally log things like location because we were interested in did location actually help and so if we didn't gather it we couldn't necessarily assess it and then things like when was your phone on when was it off we didn't lo look at actually any phone usage like what were you doing on your phone we were more concerned on you know were you turning on your phone you know maybe were you using your phone before you went to bed right uh, and then just generally kind of, you know, where did you go in terms of a normal, normal cadence of a day, or if you were traveling for work, kind of looking at sort of, you know, what's normal and what's a little bit different to provide context. And so then kind of one of the more important pieces of context then would be these Bluetooth beacons. Mm -hmm. And so these are basically, we got these uh, from a particular company called Gimbal. And the nice part about those is they're very privacy sensitive. So they use some interesting cryptography underneath such that you just can't scan and find these beacons. You have to be actually part of the ecosystem underneath. Mm -hmm. And we ended up passing out four beacons. So we gave our participant two static beacons. These were relatively reasonable range beacons. And we asked them to put one at home and one at work. And again, the idea with those is you know, I, I don't really need, necessarily need to know your location, yeah. but it would be really great if I knew you were at work or at home, right. especially because this is related to performance. So it, could I use these beacons and not track your location? Um, and so the idea was you would just kind of put these in a drawer at work or at home. And then we also asked them to carry these kind of two small kind of key fob like beacons. Yeah. And these are, you know, just the size of a quarter, put it on your keychain or close to uh just on a set of keys or maybe in a suitcase or something you might take to work. And the idea there is, you know, so it kind of is on you. And then what we're looking for is, are you interacting with other people in the study at work? And that has a whole slew of how do you, you know, how do you get enough people at a workplace to do that? But we were sort of looking at like coincidental contact at work. You know, if you're a manager, do you go and see people at their desk uh, or do you just how often do maybe you meet in the hallway now this the big caveat on that is that only works if both people are enrolled in the study if you're not in the study you're effectively invisible and so we passed out those and then the final sort of stream that we brought in was social media you know and social media is you know received a considerable amount of publicity and so moon moon's work out of georgia tech is phenomenal she's done a lot of work looking at sort of mental health um, depression, just generally sort of interpreting social media. And the thinking was, is could we take in aspects such as like Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and, and how could that maybe provide us some insight, particularly about mood or life events that were going on yeah. to help sort of understand, again, context. Uh, the main thing remembering with social media is it, it's not a continuous sensor. Uh, it's whatever you feel like you want to post, uh, then there'd be information that we might be able to glean from that, whereas our wearable and our phone agent are kind of gathering data continuously. And so the idea then is, you know, can I fuse this all together to help me make better sense? So you might be stressed and maybe you posted something on social media. You know, the wearable says your heart rate or your, your heart rate variability has changed. And then maybe social media helps us understand a little bit more about what might be stressing you. Right. And a key thing to remember on social media is we, we've effectively de-identified it. So you can reduce it down to just larger characteristics and sentiment. So we're not necessarily sharing or any sort of, you know, what is the exact post? Uh, what we're looking at is extracting certain keywords that help us understand sentiment. So like maybe you were sick 
or I'm excited in those kind of words and how they might map to emotion as opposed to just logging all of the social media underneath. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, when I when I read this, Aaron, I kept thinking about other use cases, uh, especially in healthcare. Uh, as you know, in the context of COVID-19, the latest statistic um, I, I saw was about 10% of the country uh, has some level of depression um, mm-hmm. currently. And, um, you know, I don't know how long this is going to last and what the long-term implications are. Uh, but presumably we are getting into a regime where, um, you know, a lot of people uh, could have health related issues, not only tactically, but more long term. Right. So th- this might have some applications there, too. Definitely. And, and Moon Moon's group has looked at a lot of kind of just general, you know, particular with students thinking about mental health and depression and how that might manifest itself in social media. Uh one of the challenges, of course, is kind of, you know, there's been more skepticism towards social media. And so we saw that even during our study where Facebook had the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and that actually had a real chilling effect yeah. in terms of how people use social media. And we saw that in all of our data. And so that's, that's a challenge as well, because again, social media is kind of, are you choosing to post it? And so what we found is there were some of our users who are very prolific. Uh, generally younger, uh, who did you did a lot of social media, and that was great. But there was also, since we had a pretty healthy age range in our study, uh, there was a healthy number that largely just kind of lurked or observed on social media. And so there wasn't really a rich data stream. And so there's always a challenge on this. And I think that's, there's a lot of really kind of fascinating work with regards to wearables, and phone usage, and trying to figure out and coupled with social media to to better understand mental health because some of the biomarkers that we get from a wearable are, are really useful from a just sort of an acute stress standpoint where yeah. you know my heart rate has changed just now but understanding things that are more chronic or perhaps that are trends over time uh, those are more difficult you know to get at and trying to design studies to kind of get at that particular pieces of information is, is challenging. There's, there's been a lot of interesting work that's kind of bubbled up in the wearable space, mm-hmm. uh, particularly with regards to just outright detecting COVID uh, symptoms, uh, generally things like respiration rate and some of that. But the mental health side, that's still, a, it's a real challenge. And there, there's a lot of kind of exciting research trying to kind of divine or discern that. And it, it's challenging because many of the signals are really weak. Right. And so trying to figure out what was real versus what was noise. And then in particular, how do you get at a ground truth is hard. Mm. And so bringing that all together is that there's a lot of kind of really fascinating research challenges. And there's a lot of really, really intelligent people in the research community trying to discern, you know, what could we plausibly try to, uh, to learn from these and, and what could we gain, um, uh, you know, that might be actionable, you know, that would be able to sort of what's that signal in the noise. Right, right. And, and, and you found some uh, differences in compliance rates, right, uh, whether you enroll them remotely or face to face. And uh, I guess they had to um, respond to a survey on some regular frequency. Uh, so, so what did you find from a compliance perspective? What was the difference face to face enrollment and remote? 
Yeah. So one of the one of the challenges is, you know, when you, when you try to do these studies, you know, as, as an academic or just generally for for looking at these sorts of things is, is how do you try to scale these sort of studies? Yeah. Um, you know, we had 757, which is just a gigantic number uh, when you're actually sharing wearables and all of this sort of everything was study provided. So to, to provide a little bit of context, uh, we had basically we had kind of two groups uh, that we had enrolled people in. But our, our goal was 750. We'd done that. We'd done 750 with a past student study <laughs> and we felt we could get 750 information workers, which are not on campus, which is which is a challenge. And then, you know, we would provide them wearables, the wearables, the beacons, and they would choose elect to share their data with us. And so how we set up the study was, is that you would get paid $750 over the course of the study, which is, you know, seems amazing and incredible. Uh, That was tempered with the fact that these were information workers, you know, so these were white collar, you know, white collar workers that, you know, already earned a pretty good salary and so that was that sort of compensation was intentionally designed um, to not uh, not sort of, you know, make them jump at the study and take unnecessary risk, but sort of tempering it with their existing salary levels. And because we were asking them to do a lot of stuff over a whole year, and these are kind of very, very busy people. So a question that emerges from that is, you know, if I'm going to spend this much money to try to do these sort of studies you know, how can I better understand compliance? Because this is expensive, mm. you know? And so can I understand early on uh, who's likely to be compliant with the study with the, the caveats being is, you know, you don't just want to have wholly compliant people in your study uh, if that skews your, yes. your demographics. So, you know, if you only get conscientious people in your study, but you need to study a, a broader population to be able to generalize your findings, it does you no good. Mm. And so- we had when we when we set up our study, you know, every people would enroll. Generally speaking, we had worked with various employers to kind of advertise via word of mouth. Um, they might have seen their friends participate in the study. We used a LinkedIn and some of some various other mechanisms to kind of to get that. But we had kind of our first kind of three cohorts that we enrolled, which was about three hundred. Um, people, we enrolled them all in person. So we either went to their place of work and we had a bank of eight laptops. So to take the initial survey um, and then we kind of helped them face to face in terms of those sorts of things or, um, and then we switched over and we did remote. And this remote one was we would send you the the parts for the study. Mm -hmm. And then as we send you the parts for the study, then we'd ask you to kind of get it all working. And then once you got it all working, then we would have somebody basically make sure, you know, it's all working, do the, make sure you took the survey all right. And so it was a little bit, not that face-to-face interaction that you might have with somebody uh, in terms of getting set up. And so we were kind of curious to see, you know, would you get similar compliance for the, if you were enrolled remotely where we never saw you face-to-face versus if we saw you in person. And so kind of, you know, the, the interesting sort of things, if you will, uh, in terms of compliance is we looked at uh, you know, how much of the variance in compliance could we predict? You know, could we do things like personality? Uh, could we do things like how well you did on your surveys, maybe during the first couple of weeks? So, you know, would that be predictive of how you're going to fare uh, over the whole year? Mm-hmm. And so what we find generally is, you know, folks who are a little bit older, um, 
tend to fare a little bit better. Folks, of course, who are conscientious fare a little bit better. But we could predict roughly up to 40% of the variance, uh, kind of within the first two weeks of the study. And the paper sort of walked through, uh, you know, what what generally, if you were trying to design a study and maybe maybe trying to kind of minimize the number of people who would drop out or just be non-compliant, or are there certain characteristics maybe you could pick up on early on to, to do a better job? And it was, you know, not 40% of the variance is, is pretty good. You know, and these are lessons that somebody could take, you know, who would be designing a larger scale study like this, or maybe even for, say, an employer, you know, that might want to offer, say, uh, Fitbits or, say, Garmin devices. You know, if you wear this Garmin or Fitbit yeah. to try to improve your health, I'll give you $100 off your health insurance right. um, for the year, trying to kind of predict who might be, who might fare a bit better um, on that. And so, you know, there, there's some... Interesting things. Generally speaking, the first two weeks are strongly indicative of how it's going to fare overall. Yeah. Now, now, that being said, for our study, you have to add in the caveat that uh, you you had to complete this initial survey, and then we would we would poke you once a day, mm. you know, roughly about a two minute survey to kind of ask you how you were feeling that day, things like mood or productivity, just once per day. We tried to keep it relatively benign, but then we still asked you to keep the phone agent running and wear the wearable. And all of those things would sort of fit into compliance in a broader sense. Yeah, again, <laughs> I see other use cases here, Aaron, you know, clinical trials, for example, if you can predict compliance behavior using early data, you know, first couple of weeks of data, that has a lot of implications for, um, for, for clinical trials as well. Um, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. De de definitely. You know, and, th and there's a healthy body of literature, you know, on the, on the medical side that tries to look at this, you know, from primarily a clinical trial perspective. But there's some interesting things in terms of maybe app interactions or sort of more digital ways uh, to do that that don't require the provider to be seeing the person every day that could be helpful. Right, right. Yeah, I want to jump into another paper, which was done a little, little while ago, but it has increasing relevance. Face-to-face <laughs> uh, -face proximity estimation using Bluetooth on smartphones. And you say that the availability of always-on communications has tremendous implications for how people interact socially. Uh, in particular, sociologists are, are, are interested in the question of such uh, pervasive uh, access increases or decreases face-to-face -face interactions. So, so you're trying to measure uh, in a population uh, how frequently they interact face-to-face, -face, right? And, and uh, that distance, that face-to-face -face, uh, uh, interaction distance varies uh, based on the environment and so on. So could you talk a bit about, um, bit about that? Sure. So th this actually came out of our, our NetSense study and you know, kind of, or sorry, our, our, our NetSense and our, our NetHealth study. And the, the issue we were looking at there was, and as you said, it's highly relevant now, is we were working with sociologists, uh, David Haken and Omar Lazardo uh, at Notre Dame. And, and what we were trying to understand is, you know, how do students make and keep friends? And in sociology, we'd refer to these as ties. Yeah. And so, we're interested in, you know, when students come to campus, you know, Notre Dame draws from a very broad cross section of individuals across the country. So, so most of the students don't know each other before they show up. And so we're interested in, okay, you know, these, these freshmen come to campus, uh, 
you know, when do they make their friendships and then how do they sort of persist over the next four years? And so NetSense had kind of looked at just using a smartphone and then NetHealth, we added in a wearable on top of it. But the, the issue was, is, you know, uh, you know, I can poll you and I can ask you and say, like, who are you friends with? You know, and that's OK. But I, but I probably can't do that every day, mm-hmm. uh, even every week or even every month is too much. And so we were using Bluetooth, you know, which has received a lot of attention with the digital contact tracing um, out there. And so we had looked at what we wanted to understand is Bluetooth can do a pretty good job, you know, at the time that would look at, like, are you in the same room? And so that paper had explored what we wanted to understand was, you know, could we could we know when you were in close proximity versus just in the same room? So the, the existing work at the time largely focused on, did I detect a Bluetooth signal? Yeah. And the problem you would have with that is you couldn't really discern were you in the same room or within six feet, you know, which of course is the, the sort of, you know, distance that's widely accepted now for, for COVID <laughs> detection. Right. And so... We'd gone through and we'd measured various things around campus, trying to figure out distance. Like if you were sitting at a table, how far was it? And just watching students and observing. And we did a healthy amount of testing looking at, could you use the Bluetooth signal strength then um, to then try to figure out, you know, are, are you in close proximity? And there's something called uh, RSSI, yeah. which is Received Signal Strength Indicator. And that's been used, you know, pretty, pretty broadly in terms of triangulation. So if you look at cell phone tower, geolocation, um, Wi-Fi, often you'll see systems using that, but their accuracy is not enough. And so we were looking at interested in, you know, if I look at pairwise, uh, looking at either phone detecting each other, could they pick that up? Now, again, the caveat I have to add with all of this is that if, if both of the people are not running the same app or study, you can't just go around randomly scanning people and, and, and doing that. They all have to sort of participate mm. or opt in. Yeah. Otherwise, I, I, I can't just pick you up. Um, and so this paper looked at, you know, how good, how accurate could I be? And, and what we found is, is, you know, in this case, it was Bluetooth Classic, which was not necessarily the beacons that you would see nowadays, is that if you were within two meters mm-hmm. of each other, we could do a pretty good job of discerning uh, you know, two meters or less or greater, and we could do a pretty good job in terms of location up to two meters. But it dip- once you got more than dip- once you got more than two meters out, does it depend on your indoors or outdoors, Aaron? It does somewhat. Yeah. Uh, you know, the two meters was pretty solid okay. for both indoors and outdoors. You know, when you're when you're outdoors, it's actually a little bit more helpful. Mm-hmm. So what happens indoors is you get what's called multipathing effects where your signal might go out and it bounces off the concrete and comes back. Yeah. And there's various things underneath how you can kind of discern the, the, the time of arrival, angle of arrival, but you, you can't get that unless you're sort of at the really lowest layer. A phone's not going to give you that. But uh, generally speaking, if, if, you're, if you're outdoors, the signal decays more rapidly mm-hmm. uh, because you don't get that multipathing, whereas indoors, you know, it's a, it's a little bit better, but we were primarily concerned with indoors yeah. uh, because we were interested in, you know, are, are you sitting in the classroom together? You know, are you walking to class together? You know, those are the things. And we did as part of like one of our later studies looking at like, uh, do students, could I detect who your friendship group is by who you go to eat at with the dining hall? Um, and then that has some implications for like understanding, you know, dining hall design. And then of course, 
all of these sorts of things have incredible relevance now for COVID, right? right? Because, you know, I'm interested in that six feet. That's the sweet spot where it really works Uh, from a digital contact tracing perspective. You know, it could be very powerful, but the flip side is there's a lot of caveats, both with respect to privacy, as well as to accuracy, you know, the relevance for digital contact tracing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it could be helpful, but I think the, the important part to remember on all of those is it's, it's a tool um, to help out, not a replacement. And like there's been efforts by like the government in Singapore, they built a trace together. You have the Apple and Google efforts going on that are all really relevant yeah. um, to that, again, to, to come up with another tool to help in the fight against COVID. Yeah, it's interesting, Aaron. Um, Apple just came out with a, with an update to the operating system. They have built into the operating system some sort of a notification um, mm-hmm. for COVID infection. So you don't have to actually download an app. It is in the operating system itself now. Uh, and so uh, and it's, I don't know exactly how it works. It's be, probably based on um, self-reporting or some, some other database essentially giving you a notification that you are in close proximity uh, to an infection. Um, now that coupled with your ability to understand, um, you know, uh, how close you are to an individual um, could be quite, quite useful, right? You know, for instance, I don't know what the privacy and security implications of this is, but uh, you could imagine a situation where the phone vibrates or gives an alert if you are close to um, an infected individual, for example. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it is even possible. So this is, this, is, this, is, this is one of the real challenges, you know, and I know, the, you know there was a lot of kind of discussions in kind of March, April, and May about how to do this in a privacy-sensitive manner. Yeah. Because imagine, you know, if, if there's somebody who's COVID infected and your phone buzzes, and tells you they're COVID infected, but there's only one other person standing around you. Um, <laughs> that's that's not great, right? Because you, you're like, okay, I know you have COVID. Uh, so so generally, how it works is, what they do is, they they basically turn your phone into a beacon. Yeah. And your phone is chirping, you know, uh, but it's doing this in a manner that has crypto- cryptography built into it, mm. and so your phone then can listen in to these advertisements. These advertisements, you know, do they do some tricks with what's called the Mac address or the identifier. So you can't really map it back to a specific piece of hardware. And then using some very clever cryptography, you basically can query and say, here's the people, here's the, here's the, the, the cryptographically secret pieces of information that I've seen over the day. Mm. Uh, that's shared with the database uh, overall, but I can go and basically then I can query and say, are any of these cryptographically secret ones? Did any of them have COVID? Right. And so then your, your phone every once in a while goes out and it checks to see, and then you have a public health authority that's involved that provides kind of the, here's the people who had COVID. Mm. And then again, there's some cryptography magic that goes on in the middle that then sort of marks it, if you will. So the, there, there's very, it's very intentionally designed such that you can't know who had COVID. Now, there are certain cases, edge cases where it breaks down. You know, let's suppose, you know, you are, you're only at home yeah. <laughs> and your spouse gets COVID <laughs> and they're the only person your phone has seen. 
you know, you know there, there's some edge cases where it breaks down. But generally speaking, you know, if you interact, you know, with 100 or 200 people in a day, you're not going to be able to discern who amongst that had COVID. And that's very intentional in their design because there's there's a lot of privacy concerns, yeah. you know, because while this can be very useful from a COVID perspective, the concern is this could easily be flipped over to become a surveillance tool. Right. And that's the from authoritarian or just civil liberties perspective, you know, there's a lot of concern on that. And we, we actually have an ongoing effort, uh, I myself and a colleague looking at, you know, how do you kind of minimize the amount of information leakage for some of these edge cases and only expose the bare minimum uh, to be useful? Because, you know, what's your end goal? Your end goal is if you were exposed um, to get you to go take a, a COVID test. Right. you know, to get checked up on that or to potentially to isolate a little bit early, but kind of the, the, the delta or the value add of the trade-off of privacy of should you do that in the next 10 minutes <laughs> or should you do it within the next few hours? You know, it's uh, trying to balance that privacy versus speed right. uh, on that. And then, you know, not, not revealing, you know, who has COVID, you know, part of that is this could be very sensitive information. And so being very mindful of how do you, protect that and again there's a lot of really smart people who do some really fantastic work uh with regards to how can you securely share the information without revealing it and still keep it uh robust uh from potential bad actors uh there's a lot of wicked awesome uh, work that's in the area too yeah and you know um not to be too pessimistic about it um COVID-19 is one shock and maybe there's COVID-20 behind it and so, mm-hmm. you know, it might be that we are into a position that requires um, this type of thing, um, not just for one year, two years, but, you know, uh, perhaps forever. Um, and so, yeah, yeah <laughs> a lot of questions around uh, regulation and, and policy choices there. Yeah, and I, I think there's some interesting things too, particularly, you know, if you look at the wearable space is, you know, are some of these wearables uh, potentially early warning sensors, yeah. you know, looking at the, uh, you look at like the influenza like symptom network right. that sort of tripped a bit early in New York. Um, understanding better how we sort of synthesize some of those medical records and maybe coupled with some wearable data. And as we start to network, you know, some of the hospital data, and try to figure out how to kind of silo and share it appropriately. You know, I think some of our capacity to better detect it um, for better or for worse, COVID-19 has shown a lot of the shortcomings in our current system. And so hopefully there'll be some streamlining uh, to, to, to better be able to kind of detect these sorts of things. And I think perhaps thinking about where we need more people watching you know, and sort of paying attention because at the end of the day, you know, machine learning and AI is fabulous, but uh, a lot of times you still need a domain expert to kind of really distill that signal from noise and ask yourself if it makes sense. And, you know, hopefully this kind of exposes some of the weaknesses in our system to help us better design things moving forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something good will come out of it. I want to jump into another paper you have. And again, I find a lot of different use cases for this. Uh, on the interplay between individuals' evolving interaction patterns and traits in dynamic multiplex social networks. Um, you want to describe a little bit about it? So this is uh, you sure. have individual traits, and generally speaking, 
people tend to gravitate toward others, they form networks. Uh, those networks in a dynamic sense uh, could have some effect on the individual and individual is shaping those networks as well, right? So studying that over time uh, from a network perspective appears very interesting. Yeah, so this is this is a really fascinating question from a sociological phenomenon. And so this was work that I'd done jointly with Tiana Milenkovic. Uh, we had co-advised uh, one of my students, Lei Meng and Yuri Holatve. Um, they had looked at this and th this took our, our, our net sense and our net health data. Yeah. And what we were interested with this is because we had network data, you know, both reported kind of via social networks. We, we extracted network data via text messages, sort of who were you texting as well as via Bluetooth. Um, what we were, what we were trying to look at is, you know, if I look at a network, there's different ways I can explore it. One way is to look at sort of global network alignment, right. which is trying to figure out, you know, how do my links and edges, how do I preserve this at a very high level? So, you know, kind of try to maximize the overlap and preserve some of the patterns. And then other ways to look at it would be is to try to align it on a more local level. Mm. So if you think about sort of what's called graph isomorphism and thinking about, you know, are certain triangles or hourglass shapes um, preserved and then trying to kind of maximize that on a very small scale. Because mm -hmm. at a high level, these networks are big. Um, now, in our case, it was, again, roughly you know, roughly about 700 plus individuals mm -hmm. that we'd looked at for some of these. And so, but even then to kind of compute and do all of this, it's it's a potentially a, an N cubed or N to the fourth uh, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's very costly to try to do these sort of alignments. But what we were looking at is, um, from a sociological phenomenon, there's something called homophily, yeah. which is if you think about, you know, do I do I get drawn to kind of the mean of the you know characteristics? So maybe I don't stay up late, but all my friends stay up late. <laughs> um, do I do I stay friends with them or do I now I stay up late, too? You know, or do I do I make them all go to bed earlier, which probably for college kids is probably not happening. But uh, there's this notion of sort of this this network effect. And so we looked at things like BMI and looking at various aspects of personality. And the interesting part on this is we were able to validate some of the findings looking not only drawing from net health, but also drawing from there was an existing study by Sandy Pentland out of MIT called the reality mining study. Hmm. And so we were able to look at these these network effects and really interesting, again, how you talked about, you know, how do they evolve? You know, how does my friendship evolve from semester to semester to semester in these sort of, how do I model? How do I capture it? And how do I analyze it? And looking at various aspects of the networks themselves. So things looking at like centrality or different sort of aspects of the, of the graphs themselves, like degree or density, um, you know, which ones are helpful. Yeah. Um, looking at these sorts of things. So, so kind of in some sense, sort of a North star, if you will, in terms of how might I look about these, these networks. And that's, it's, it's a fascinating way to look at these sort of this network analysis phenomenon uh, in terms of kind of, again, relevant again, from a, from a COVID perspective, if you think about all the bubbles, you know, that we, <laughs> that, that's talked about, you know, have your local bubble and, you know, how do you have bubbles that interact with bubbles and looking at those sort of transitivity effects, you know, there's a lot of interesting things, I think, ways to study problems 
Uh, and in particular, that work really evolved from a lot of work studying biological phenomenon and looking at gene expressions, mm. things like aging, and taking some of those same tools and then trying to apply them to different domains is, you know, it's a really kind of intriguing way to look at things. Yeah, um, it, it's really fascinating, you know. So you are looking at how individuals gravitate towards certain networks and then those networks are clustered uh, in some ways, right? So, you know, um, I was thinking that let's say you have you have a measurement that says XYZ is in, in this cluster in this network, and that would be your expectation of that individual. And mm -hmm. if you see a drift in that individual moving to another network, moving to another cluster, again, that could imply something, right, about that individual. Perhaps it's uh, something to do with health. Perhaps it's to do with something with mental health and things like that. Is that possible? Yeah, and that's, that's definitely, if you look at uh, some of the work looking at, like, social networking, yeah. and some of that takes some of those same concepts to try to extract things like depression. Yeah. So, you know, if I can study things like social withdrawal, um, looking at the number of interactions and changes. And the, the kind of the trick or the hard part, if you will, is each person is a bit individually different. Mm -hmm. So understanding for, say, you, Gil, what would be the change that matters versus the change for myself, that threshold might be different. And it might be a function of maybe, you know, how extroverted I am, maybe my job role, um, and kind of discerning what, what's a meaningful change for you. Right. And then, you know, discerning, because oftentimes there, there's a lot of changes, you know, there's just fundamental to a network, but then discerning what, what's meaningful and then what's actionable. And then a question is sort of, you know, how early could I see it? And then how confident could I be that that result is actionable to allow me to, you know, do something to intervene right. um, on it? Or maybe is it more broadly useful from maybe a population standpoint? So maybe, you know, I'm interested in a metric for campus population that might say, okay, my students are more stressed. Uh, you know, I need to do more interventions for counseling you know, maybe more awareness or looking at these sorts of things. Maybe, maybe it's just a broader organizational trend as opposed to an individual interaction. Right. Um, but it's, there, there's a lot of really, really cool work that's going on in the community trying to, to make sense of this, you know, and, it, you know, ultimately, you know, could I intervene earlier, you know, if you're suffering from depression um, or these sorts of things or get you that help that you need um, on that is, you know, Incredibly useful, especially in these times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and to your point, it may not be an individual intervention. It could be a network intervention, possibly, right? So you could conceivably, Alan, I'm just speculating here, attach a transmission index <laughs> or transmissibility mm -hmm. index uh, to a network. Um, it might be based on the characteristics uh, of the individuals that form that network or that cluster. And so if that transmissibility index is beyond certain threshold, perhaps you can intervene on the network somehow. Uh, to reduce yeah. That. yeah, yeah, exactly. You might you might look at it. So like for one, for example, one of the things our, our student athletes had done at Notre Dame was they, they set up these kind of town halls to talk about mental health awareness. 
Yeah. And having some of the more senior athletes come out and say, you know, I, I suffered from these particular issues, you know, related to anxiety, stress or pressure and being really kind of forthcoming about that. You know, you can look at it. Not only have I detected that, that maybe you as an individual have moved this way or this group has changed, but maybe there might be obstacles in terms of pursuing uh, mental health. Uh, that, you know, I might make someone, I wouldn't say quite more susceptible, but make them perhaps more amenable to going out and seeking that sort of assistance as well. Mm -hmm. You know, and are there ways to kind of from a from an organizational perspective, you know, you can think about this, you know, whether it's an institution like Notre Dame or it's a, a large employer, you know, looking at how are ways that maybe I can better gain some insight, you know, again, in terms of, you know, at an organizational level, what are the trends and how can I maybe steer them towards more desirable outcomes, you know, just to, to, to improve the health and well-being of my employees, which I think most organizations realize is absolutely essential to their success. Right, right. Yeah, so in conclusion, uh, you know, if you take these three papers that we discussed, uh, what could we do uh, in this COVID-19 context um, more tactically, you know, next year or so uh, that could make things better? You know, people talk about herd immunity and those types of things. Uh, I don't think we are really measuring disease burden um, very well. Uh, we know what's happening in the very short run. We have no idea what's going to happen in the in the long run. So the disease burden that we anticipate could be uh, could be substantially underestimated. Uh, mm. And so if if uh, reducing infection is still the, the objective function, um, what could we do in the next six months, one year to, to improve it? So I, I think one of the, the particularly salient points we could look at is understanding people's perception of risk and their risk amenability. So I think one of the you know, if you look at some of the modeling efforts, and again, I'm not an epidemiologist, so, you know, I'll add in those caveats, but understanding modeling, you know, gravitating, thinking about uh, super spreader events, yeah. uh, thinking about uh, people's propensity to go and be at a super spreader event hmm. and understanding that kind of mindset with regards to contact tracing or I think people's attitudes towards, you know, understanding how do I improve ad adoption of things like mask wearing or, you know, how do I, can I make people aware of, of understanding the risk of different activities? You know, that's, I think that's been probably for an individual, one of the more frustrating points is understanding what can I do? How can I understand, you know, is it red, yellow, green, yeah. you know, which activities are most risky versus which activities, you know, are, are, are just fine, you know? And I think, you know, a lot of that has evolved as our understanding of COVID has evolved. But if we have new emerging infectious diseases is understanding, you know, what is risky or what is not in a way to kind of track that, you know, digital contact tracing cuts a little bit at that. That's right. primarily oriented at, you know, did I come in contact with somebody who, you know, potentially had COVID, but what if you think more broadly and you think about who are the people that I were in contact with and how risky was their behavior? Because right. if you think about how bubbles work and those sorts of things, what the bubble is trying to do is that you're trying to keep the people in your nearby circle all effectively with manageable risk, but mm -hmm. anybody they interact with, you're sharing that risk. And so 
understanding, I think, in a broad sense, both people's attitudes, as well as is there a way to sort of visualize or better comprehend uh, those sorts of things? I think that's a really missing piece, Yeah, you know, that we, we don't have a lot of data um, on that. And I think that there's a real, you know, potential to kind of fill in some of that, but it, it's, it's, it's difficult data to get at, uh, difficult data to kind of understand. And a lot of it kind of can be cut to a lot of this, this proximity and interaction and understanding that. And that's, that's a real challenge, but I think there's a lot of opportunities uh, in that space that would really help inform our understanding and decision making. Yeah, yeah. Almost everything that we do today is sort of looking back, right? So mm-hmm. I think, you know, what you are also getting into is, you know, can we predict something? Can we predict the risk mm-hmm. of getting infected, the risk of transmitting? It's a multifactorial analysis. Um, individual traits go into it. Uh, their state uh, goes into it. Um, and so there is some predictability there. Now, obviously, that gets into uh, privacy concerns. Uh, maybe it's not individual interventions. Maybe this network uh, sort mm-hmm. of uh, customized interventions one could one could do, right? Yeah, you know, or even think, you know, you know, go a little bit crazier and think about, you know, could I look at, you know, trying to limit interactions or at least I, 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 I don't know if I'd call it manipulate them but you know imagine a system where it tells you you know hey if you go to the grocery store from nine to ten mm. this is the lowest risk time to do that or trying to balance <laughs> maybe how you might report this information you know we've seen that kind of like you know grocery stores will say okay from from eight to nine in the morning these are oriented at people who are in the high risk category yeah. to try to limit exposure. You know, are there ways to look at this more broadly? You know, maybe maybe drawing on particular patterns of these sorts of things that again can just inform because you know mm-hmm. I don't necessarily want to be fully tracked, but you know if some of this data is aggregated, could it could it better inform my decisions as an individual uh, to help reduce that overall sort of risk? you know, and potential when we have that human to human transmission and these sorts of things, you know, and, and are there ways to kind of more broadly, you know, look at the, at health related to this. And there's a lot of just kind of broader system dynamics, you know, whether, whether you look at just general sort of areas of development or general city planning and those sorts of things, there's a lot of analogs of how can the data, you know, help, help better inform us to, to make those particular decisions and, you know, a lot of it boils down to networks and understanding interactions. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for this. And uh, thanks for spending time with me. And uh, good luck with all this research that you're doing in this area. Thank you very much, Gil. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye.